Here's Bren. I've been sick. <laughs> Leave me alone, okay? <laughs> so really good news. You don't have to listen to me again today, okay? We are actually, I'm really excited. This was decided a while ago before I got sick, so this wasn't another weekend of me not preaching, but we are starting the book of 1 Corinthians today, and I'm super, super excited about that. We're going to work through that as a church, and so I had asked a really good friend of mine, mentor, he's poured into me for years selflessly, an amazing person, Derek Voorhees, he's the president of Boise Bible College, was a professor for many years, was a pastor for many years before that. He's an incredible encouragement, and I said, hey, will you just, will you just come and teach us everything we need to know about Corinth in that time and, and really challenge us to get, get our, our minds and our, our hearts ready to dig into 1 Corinthians, and he's... He graciously obliged. Come on up, Dr. Voorhees. <laughs> Thank you. It was fantastic for service. I love this man. He has been an immense encouragement to me. It's really incredible what God is doing through him at Boise Bible College. And it's just an honor to partner with him. And if you don't know him, you just need to introduce yourself because I'm telling you, he's an incredible man. So I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to go. God, thank you so much for Derek. Thank you for his leadership, his faithfulness, his, um, his desire to just be used by you. God, thank you for what you're doing at Boise Bible College, and thank you for those that are stepping in to, to lead your bride, whether it's vocationally or bivocationally. We're just, we're just so gracious, grateful for that, Lord. Pray for more. I pray for more of that, Lord. I thank you for today, and I pray that you would um, continue to just be with uh, Derek and Nell and their family and just continue to, to keep them surrendered to you as he leads and, and, and serves you. As he teaches today, God, I pray that we wouldn't just be here to hear a lecture from a class, but we would let the word that is living and active really penetrate our hearts. I pray that you would give him uh, every word that he is to say today and that he wouldn't allow a single one to slip out from his flesh, God. I pray that, that you be glorified in everything. I pray that, that at the end of this, we wouldn't just feel like we learned something, but instead would be captivated by your word and excited about what your spirit's doing in us for your kingdom purposes. I thank you and I pray as we... As we listen, as we, uh, as we chew on, as we wrestle with the words that are coming, God, I pray that it points us back to you and glorifying you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Sure appreciate you, Bryn. Um, grateful for the opportunity to be with you all. Uh, again, I've been here a few times at Bryn's invitation, so I'm grateful to step in again. If, if you need a Bible, we've got extra Bibles, put your hand in the air. You might um, open up your app and, and just get ready. We'll look at a few verses in 1 Corinthians, but I... Uh, I'm, here's my big thought. Like, and let me just get it out. If you've got a piece of paper there, you can take some notes or on your, on your note-taking app. Here's the big idea I kind of want to leave with you, and I want to say it right now ahead of time. So here it is. The way we view tomorrow affects the way we view today. The way we view tomorrow affects how we live today. And so th that, that idea is challenged by uh, several things. One of, those, one of those would be carpe diem, carpe diem. Uh, seize the day, that phrase from Horace, a uh, first century poet back in the first century B.C. when Augustus Caesar reigned, he, he coined the phrase, actually it's in a longer phrase, let me say it for you, carpe diem quam minimum credula postero, which means seize the day, put little trust in tomorrow. When Horace wrote that, the meaning of it, I think, is his idea was the future is unforeseen, so since it's unforeseen, one should not leave to chance future happenings, but do all that you can today that's possible to help you with tomorrow. So do all you can today. The meaning of seize the day, the meaning of carpe diem as, as coined by Horace originally is not to ignore the future, just that you understand that you don't put any stock in the future. You don't trust in anything that's going to fall into place for you 
that you can't control. Like today I can, tomorrow I can't. So seize today. In short, the, the future depends on what you do today. Carpe diem. Associated with that phrase would be memento mori, uh, which is translated, remember that you're mortal. Horace also spoke of that mindfulness of our, moral, of our mortality helps us realize the importance of today. So let's smash those two together. Carpe diem memento mori. Remember that you're mortal, so seize today. Right? That was sort of the philosophy of, of what Horace was getting at. I think it sounds pretty narcissistic, actually. So that really came to life in 1989 when the famous movie Dead Poets Society came out and John Keating, played by Robin Williams, had this famous statement, Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Again, I think it's still pretty narcissistic. (laughs) As though the future depends on what you do for yourself. So in our English language, there's an expression, YOLO, you only live once, I think kind of, kind of is a cousin to this idea a little bit. So if you press YOLO too far or carpe diem to its extreme and you let those slogans kind of rule your life, you'll discover some theological landmines. I think you'll discover some theological problems. First Corinthians addresses those. The playing out of that sort of a philosophy is addressed in 1 Corinthians. I think it's hard to visualize tomorrow. Would you agree? It's hard to get our minds around what tomorrow is when we think all we have is today. So our culture today, as it was in Corinth, pressures us to stay in the moment. And tomorrow will bring what it is. So seize this day. Now, before you get too upset because I I just poked at your slogan for life for 2019... There may be some allowances to carpe diem. Like, for example, if you're an athlete or you got a big, huge business meeting in the moment, right? Be there. Or your wedding day, be in the moment. Seize that moment right there. But let's be honest, there's some danger. If we live this out too far, to grasp today with little regard for tomorrow actually affects how you live today. So let's kind of run this through the ringer, right? Let's apply carpe diem to uh, your income. So... Spend money however you feel today because you may not have it tomorrow. How's that going to work for you? (laughs) A healthy principle to guide us and to manage our money management would be give, save, live. Give right off the top some of your salary. Save next for tomorrow. And then live according to the rest and set your budget according to that. It's a proven pattern to kind of help us manage well what God has stewarded us and given us and provided for us. Uh, It requires a view both of today and of tomorrow. Got it? So let's try another one through carpe diem. Let's, let's, let's throw your diet and your consumption or your food and your drink. If we just eat for today, what's to stop you from eating and drinking whatever you want and however much today? If that's where you live, seize this day. But if you seize this day and then you wake up that you seize this day with that diet and tomorrow you live carpe diem for tomorrow, then how's that going to look for your waistline day after day after day after day? You got the issue? Can we agree that that might be a problem, that it gets out of control with your consumption, addiction, you might become obese, out of shape? So living today with respect for tomorrow is good with regards to your health. Agreed? All right. So carpe diem, that philosophy has some limitations. And Maybe a better one would be carpe cross. Or crass, carpe crass, seize tomorrow. For it will influence your today. So as Christians, what if we recalibrate our thinking a little bit better 
to view today through Jesus' tomorrow for our today. He's transcending time. So what if Jesus' tomorrow actually affected my today? Carpe diem was actually an issue in Corinth. So as a Christian, to my big thought, how I view tomorrow affects how I live today. My future hope in Christ governs my, my present habits in Christ. So my purpose this morning, my assignment, should I choose to accept it, which I have, 25 minutes introduce 1 Corinthians. <laughs> because, it, well, it's going to be a little daunting. It's a challenging book. It's a long book. Uh, but it approaches some things that the apostle of Jesus, Paul, was inspired to, to address for the church because they had a problem living as though tomorrow mattered in their today. And the Corinthian Christians lived with a carpe diem mindset. They They struggled to have a sound view towards tomorrow, and as a result, which we'll see, which you'll see as you read it, is the way they thought and the way they behaved, their ethics, their morality, everything became problematic for their individual lives, for their married lives, for their corporate lives, for their families, raising children, for their church. And in the balance was their witness for Jesus. That's why Paul writes this. And the reason I think Horace's carpe diem is problematic for us is because of the lessons that we will see in 1 Corinthians. It addresses some of those issues. That letter from God through the Apostle Paul wants to help them, actually wants to help us as well, reacquire a healthier lens to view our life through. So I pray. I've been praying. I'm I'm praying that this intro does justice to Paul's original meaning. (laughs) If here in the audience, gulp, I hope he would think, yeah, pretty not not too bad, Derek. (laughs) I hope it helps you, though. I pray it really does assist you and in, 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 as you read through it in the days and months or however long, years, this is going to be the study. I don't know, Brent, how long it's going to be, but I hope that it really helps your today in light of your tomorrow, which will also impact your tomorrow. So in this ancient letter that Paul wrote, moved by the Holy Spirit, I'm assuming the Holy Spirit moved Paul, it addresses some really relevant issues for Christians today, and I'm kind of excited for Rev 22 to kind of journey through this, through this letter I'm honored to kind of assist you to get out of the blocks a little bit. So I'll try to do my best. Just know, Bryn kind of set that up. These are some notes that I've kind of drawn from lectures at the college and other places I've taught. But this is really good for me. This was good to relearn some things and hone some things and focus on some things. So thanks for the invite. A piece of data for you, 16 chapters long. Um, if you're counting, 437 verses. If you're really counting 6,829 6, Greek words in the original letter, it'll take you about an hour to read or listen to on your app. This week, maybe sometime this week, I'd encourage you as you venture through 1 Corinthians that, that you read it and read it all in one sitting. Uh, and I'd encourage you to read it with your traditional handheld Bible, not, not on a screen. Turn off your notifications, put the kids to bed, no Netflix. See what you discover fresh as you read this letter, like you would read a letter from your mailbox, at one sitting, all the way through it. So for starters, I like to ask this question of any Bible book. What if 1 Corinthians wasn't in our Bible? What if we only had 65 books in our Bible and this book wasn't there? What would we not know about living as a Jesus community if 1 Corinthians wasn't there? Well, there's some things in 1 Corinthians that don't show up anywhere else. For example, his, his exposition of the Lord's Supper and communion meal in chapter 11 doesn't show up anywhere else in any of his other letters. Paul doesn't address the spiritual gifts issue like he does in chapters 12 and 14. We would not have a lot of knowledge about how to handle those things. And of course, in the middle of 12 and 14, it's chapter 13. The love chapter is nowhere else in our whole Bible, so it's important to have that 
I think chapter 15, it'll be a, a, a void that would be really detrimental to your faith. Chapter 15, we would not have any understanding of how Jesus' resurrection affects our future resurrection as Christians. He doesn't speak to that near as explicitly anywhere else. If you're just looking at it as, as literature, if you're just looking at it as a piece of lit, the Apostle Paul knows this congregation well, all the warts, all the wrinkles of this church, and so he uses his, but while he's inspired by the Spirit, he uses his communication prowess as a rabbi and as a Jewish lawyer. He uses a little snarkiness in there and sarcasm. There's some poetry. Of course, there's some logic. There's narration and there's some exposition. All those pieces of literature you find there. And of course, Paul is a theologian. But you got to know this about Paul and theology. Theology takes a very practical posture in this letter. Paul's not some ethereal, esoteric theologian. He's very, very down-to-earth. Theology is lived out through our daily ethics. We see that clearly in 1 Corinthians. And we'll look at some of those practical theological points momentarily. But I, need, I think I need to set the stage for you historically. What would it have been like if we lived in 1 Corinthians Corinth? Smell it, eat it. Uh, experience it, what would it have been like to have been there? Let's take a trip back in time. You can Google some of these maps, and I'd encourage you to, but Corinth is located in, in what we know as Greece, the southern part of Greece, in the Isthmian Peninsula, the very southern peninsula part of it. In, in the ancient world, there were two ports, Corinth and Sincrea. And if you didn't want to sail all around the way around the treacherous waters of the Isthmian Peninsula, you could cut through this shortcut canal. And it, because of that, because of that canal... There was a lot of traffic that came through Corinth, and therefore it was very wealthy, very, very pronounced. It had a huge, important footprint around the turn of the millennium, B.C. to A.D. Very wealthy city with a lot of traffic. Some estimate 300,000 citizens in first century Corinth. And add to that another 450,000 slaves. It was legal in the Roman Empire to have slaves. Three-fourths of a million people living in ancient Corinth. This is no small city. You get this? Some estimate maybe the city walls were about six miles uh, in, in diameter around it. So a small area, but a densely populated area. And to live there in the first century, well, historian Strabo says that Corinth was the foremost commercial center in southern Greece. It was, it was of greater wealth and of greater influence than Athens, Greece. Whoa. And the capital of Achaia, or Greece, it was in the Roman Empire. It was the most important city in the Roman Empire next to Rome and next to Alexandria, then Corinth. Very important city. If we were residents of Corinth, you'd be proud of that. There was a major road around about 1,500 miles called the Lynchian Road that went right through Corinth, right to the, to the downtown commercial civic area. As a part of the Isthmian uh, peninsula, they held the Isthmian Games. Uh, it ran in the second and fourth years of the Olympiad in honor to the Greek god Poseidon, who was the god of the sea. So all of Greece converged in those two years for Olympic Games, Olympic-style games in Corinth. And I've even seen a funeral stone of, of an athlete who was very successful. Instead of getting gold medals, they'd give him wreaths. And this, his stone had eight wreaths. He was a very good athlete, kind of the Michael Jordan of the day or LeBron James of the day. or, or You know what I mean? Paul picks up that metaphor, and, and, and in this book, he talks about the imperishable crowns that we will receive as Christians, running with that first century. We would have understood that. Maybe you got a crown in your bedroom, and Paul picks up on that idea as you as our, our Christians. So pluralistic melting pot was the city. A lot of philosophies and cultures and lifestyles and religions kind of all stewed together. And 
social class system, the very wealthy and the very poor or middle class. And you got, you got some veterans that would retire in Corinth. You got some freedmen from Rome that would settle in Corinth. You've got a community of Jews in the synagogue in Corinth. Various Jewish names and Roman names and Greek names show up in Paul's letters to indicate this was a very diverse city. You might like it. But it was a very pagan city, thoroughly Hellenized. What I mean by that word is a Hellenistic word, as you read about Corinth, is this blending of of Greco-Roman ideas. So the Roman Latin legal literature and the Greco-Roman oral uh, traditions blended with Egyptian paganism and Asian mystery cults. This was filled with paganism. Some estimate 26 sacred places of pagan worship in the city. So you see temples to Neptune and, and Athena and Apollo and Poseidon and Asclepius and Venus and, and Aphrodite. Aphrodite, she's probably the most famous one. Atop this mountain, there was a, a, the Acro-Corinth was a hill, a huge hill about 1,800 feet above sea level that overlooked the whole city. On top of that, the highest point of the Isthmian Peninsula was the Temple of Aphrodite. It's not there anymore. You can kind of see the footprint of it, but the temple... Of Aphrodite was a huge part of the culture if you lived there. I've seen some pictures of coins, and on one side had the Aphrodite temple on the Acrocorinth. On the other side was Nero's face, emperor of Rome. Or uh, this idea of blending pagan religious activity with your, with your banking system. How dangerous would that be with your startup company in Corinth if you're a Christian? One more element is the morality. Because of Aphrodite's influence, she was the goddess of love and beauty and pleasure and procreation. The city was very sexually corrupt. To Corinthians estai meant to commit fornication. Sexual fornication, immoral fornication at the temple of Aphrodite. There was known to be a thousand prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, worshiping Aphrodite, experiencing intercourse with priestesses, as an act of worship to that mythological goddess. And the city's reputation throughout the empire was known by that. To Corinthianize meant to make something obscene or to adulterate. Licentiousness was rampant if you were a citizen in, in Corinth. To label a woman as a Corinthian woman was a derogatory comment. It meant that it was a byword implying she was sexually immoral and loose in her lifestyle. So I guess you could say whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth in a big way. So it's upon that historical stage that Paul strategically decides, as the prompting of the Spirit goes, to establish a church in that city. Acts 18, might be another book you read or a chapter you read, Acts 18 and 19, gives us some of the backdrop to the relationship we know about Paul in that Corinthian church. We know around A.D. 50 or 51, Paul establishes that church. He visits Corinth during a second missionary journey. If you know much about Paul, how he would establish a church, he would immediately go to the Jewish synagogue in the town because he wanted theologically to, to address those Jewish folks and to introduce the Messiah to them. Dr. Luke tells us in Acts 18 that one of the leaders of the Corinthian synagogue, Crispus, was converted to Christ because of Paul's teaching about Messiah. And another man named Titius Justus lived next door to the synagogue, actually uh, hosting Paul when Paul was under pressure uh, for his Christian faith. And, and Titius Justus was one of the first converts in all of southern Greece in the first century. The Jews 
He's threatened Paul's life because of his teaching of grace over Jewish Torah and Jewish law. And so they actually tried to drag Paul before the proconsul Gallio. And Gallio said, I don't want any of that religious stuff in my courtroom. You deal with it, you Jews. We see that in Acts 18. If you want to look in your Bible, Acts 18, verse 9, Dr. Luke records, the Lord said something to Paul one night in a vision. The Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I'm with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Get this, for I have many in this city who are my people, Jesus says to Paul. You got Titius Justus. Crispus, another one that embraced the gospel of Jesus was Erastus. Erastus, the city treasurer. The Greek word is adiele. He was the civic leader in the city treasury of Corinth. He actually traveled with Paul on one of his missionary journeys. He became a Christ follower. And archaeologists have found proof of something of Erastus being in the city. In the mid-first century, there's this, this inscription on a pavement that reads, Erastus, for his adielship, his work as city treasurer, paved this at his own expense. A Christian marketplace civic leader in that significant first century church in that city. Pretty amazing. And when Paul first settled into Corinth, he connected immediately with a married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Have you heard of them before? Aquila and Priscilla. We know that they are expelled out of Rome when the emperor didn't like what was going on with the Jewish folks in Rome, and he kicks them kind of throughout the empire, and this couple ends up in Corinth. They're entrepreneurs. They're tent makers, and Paul connects with them. They eventually lead a house church or a small group, if I can say that way, in Corinth under Paul's leadership. All told, Paul spends 18 months in Corinth and establishes that church. Then he leaves. After his departure, the church is in chaos. He gets word about the bad reputation that's seeping into the church. They become really divided. And while Paul is in Ephesus, after he was in Corinth, starting the church, rumors about fighting inside and quarreling in the church reached him from associates that were related to Chloe, a Christian woman in Corinth. The Christians were divided over their spiritual leader. Who is the most spiritual? Paul? I was baptized by Paul. Well, I was baptized by Peter. I was baptized by Paulus. And they're dividing over who their spiritual leader was. And the church was, was lacking in love and mutual respect to one another. Playing into that was this elitist idea, this elitism rampant in the city and rampant in the church. The church consisted of lower and middle socioeconomic folks, and so you get a a wealthier person in the church, and this class distinction gets magnified, and they create tension and faction and fighting. Paul hears about this rumor of the church being deeply divided. And the the Christians in the church are very proud as well. They boasted of their intellectual philosophy. They, they, they were very proud in their wisdom from the world. The church, the church was primarily made up of Christians with really shallow root system, spiritually speaking, in their understanding of God. They didn't know as much as they thought they did, and they, they were enticed and lured by the worldly wisdom and philosophies of the day in Corinth. Back to that Hellenistic idea, the blending of Roman and Greek ideas, one of the Hellenistic philosophies was dualism, dualism. Separation of body from one's soul. Those two don't come together ever. In that dualistic philosophy, there was this idea that matter and immatter, or material and immaterial, do not relate at all. And that philosophy was, was really popular in the day, and it emerged with this disdain for the physical, tangible, versus the higher, lofty, ethereal, existential experiences that one could have through wisdom and knowledge. 
the church believed that the human spirit was trapped, encased in one's frame, that this was like dead weight. This was, this, was, uh, this was unimportant. My flesh and my body were unnecessary compared to the human spirit. The human spirit was thought to be superior than the body. The body, therefore, the physical flesh was, was undermined and it was viewed as unnecessary. Plus, non-Christian surroundings offered this diet of over-spiritualized experiences in theology through emotionalism and experientialism. So the worship of angels or, or the prophetic utterances, and as a result, as a result of all that, there is an idea, an expectation that in Christ, by His Holy Spirit, that you could escape suffering in the body. Kind of a whacked philosophical theological idea that Paul's trying to address there. The Christians were highly experiential. They were very subjective with their faith and spiritually immature. They undervalued the body. And therefore, get this, what moral guidelines did they have for their body? They lived however because the body didn't really matter. Well, Paul's going to address that in this letter. They had this warped understanding of the body resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus really rise bodily? Like their cultural surroundings, the Christians were immoral. They were rooted in pagan spirituality, in this dualism of separating body and soul, and this escape out of suffering. All of that is in play if you're a Christian in Corinth, and if you're a new convert to this faith, and you receive this letter from Paul, where the purpose of this letter is to address the ill health of this one-time healthy church. Three members of the church found Paul in Ephesus, Stephanus. Fortunatus and Achaicus came. They brought Paul a gift, financial gift. They also brought him a report about how, what's going on in the church. And then they brought him some questions. Dear Apostle Paul, answer these questions for us. So during his three years in Ephesus, Paul writes this letter. And about 56 AD, he sends a letter back with those three guys to the church. Key questions, these six, that are, that are going to confront some of the spiritual paganism and philosophical ideas oozing into the church from the city making this an unhealthy situation. Again, to my big idea, how I view tomorrow affects how I live today. How I view my relationship with Christ tomorrow affects how I relate to Christ and the people today. And Paul's going to address that in that letter, in this letter. If you're taking some notes, you might jot this down. He starts out in the letter in the first six, six chapters addressing four problems. One of those is the disunity in the church, the problem of, of division. Paul rebukes the church for fighting. He rebukes the church for, for several things. Who's the best pastor? Who mentored me the better? Peter, Paul, Apollos? Just forget that. Your selfish, your intellectual pride, and your wisdom with debate and logic and words is getting in the way of your Christ relationship. They were succumbing to the pressure of prestige and social status and they were cliquish, which fed to their competitiveness and their comparison. So in this letter, you'll see a metaphor. Paul intentionally uses a, a metaphor, the body of Christ. Can you hear what he's doing there? The body of Christ becomes a metaphor to serve Paul well, to reunite this church back together under the lordship of Jesus. You can already hear the irony there. <laughs> the body, which was supposed to be less than the soul and the spirit, actually Jesus and the spirit bring this whole thing together against their overcharged spirituality, which was dividing the body. He also addresses in chapter 5 the problem of immorality. Get this. In the church, Paul rebukes the church for not confronting or disciplining a very, very immoral man, a guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. 
Don't understand all the issues there. He doesn't expound a whole lot, but he knows enough why they wouldn't confront this gross immorality. It might be this guy's very wealthy, very influential. He might be a leader in the church, but Paul says address it. Third problem, lawsuits. Paul rebukes this church for taking each other to secular court and trying to settle civil issues in, in, in a worldly courtroom. Why go there when, when Jesus and, and what Paul had taught them could actually settle some of these things with regards to relationships or maybe even Jewish issues? Fourth problem, the problem of sexual freedom in chapter 6. Paul rebukes their church for misusing their, their freedom across gender lines. And both are to blame, men Disrespecting women, women disrespecting men. And Paul introduces this metaphor of the temple of God, the temple, like the temple of Aphrodite, which would host uh, spiritual demons or demonic worship or dark paganism versus the temple of God housing the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you look at chapter 6, verse 19, Paul runs with that idea in this sexual freedom when he says, do you not know? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God, you're not your own. You've been purchased with a price. So therefore, glorify God with your body. Your body matters. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body matters, so keep it holy. Because how I view my body tomorrow affects how I treat it today. Those are just introductory matters, actually. Those first six chapters are introduction things that Paul uses before he starts addressing the questions from those guys. Those six questions, specifically, he answers them, and they're identifiable. As you read 1 Corinthians this week, you'll see them. Now concerning, he says that six times, starting in chapter 7. Now concerning, and these are the questions the brothers brought to him while Paul was in Ephesus. Now concerning, chapter 7, marriage and divorce. It's very practical. He deals with the issue of covenant love in a non-committal culture. I don't know if that's relevant for us at all today, but maybe for them it was. Chapter 7, he deals with now concerning unmarried, the, the virgins, and widows that are amongst you. Dealing with pure love and, and, and finding secure identity in the man Jesus. You ought to date him, have a relationship with him, of any other man. Let's get him squared up. And he addresses that in chapter 7. Paul's advice in, those two, in that chapter. Very relevant for our day-to-day. Very helpful for Christian relationships for centuries and maybe for this church today. Now concerning in chapter 8. Now concerning... The misuse of Christian freedom. He's going to pick up on this again. And he addresses it with three subtopics. Their their abuse of Christian freedom. Now that I'm in Christ, I can do whatever, right? Well, he's going to address three things. One of those was a really Corinthian cultural issue was how you deal with meat sacrificed to pagan idols. And we don't have pagan temples and buy meat from Asclepius' temple. We go to Costco. So it's not an issue that we get today. But in their world, there's a principle here that Paul says. He's saying this. If someone sees you, dear Corinthian believer, buy or eat meat from that pagan altar, you should shy away. Think twice before you do that. Your witness to them matters. If someone doesn't see you buy or eat meat from a pagan altar, it's just meat. Beware that you could be participating in worship to a pagan deity. Beware, Christian. A meal has a covenant commitment undergirding it, so be careful with your freedom. The second subpoint under this misuse of Christian freedom was their disrespect for God's image in both male and female. This 
disregard for the creator's order and role of male and female. This is where you get into chapter uh, 8 and 9, this idea, and 11, the uh, head coverings. is more than due to just hair. I think there's an authority issue going on in the Corinthian church. You'd look at that as you read it. And then one more point under this misuse of Christian freedom in chapter 11, the problem of disrespecting each other during communion, during the Lord's Supper meal. Again, the elitist class system and the gender confusion that was going on blurred the unique roles of men and women. And as a result, the Christians disrespected each other when celebrating the Lord's Supper. Wealthy hosts of large houses, they, were, they had large enough houses to host part of the church would come in. But if they didn't wait for the Voorhees to show up and all they bring is cold chicken from Costco and they always show up late and we, could, we don't need to wait for them. Paul's saying, no, 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 no. The Christian communion meal is very important when you remember Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. So here's the solution. Wait for each other and eat together. In chapter 11, verse 26, a very important verse. In this communion text, 1126, he says, For when we partake of the, of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until, until he comes. You hear that word until? That's a future aspect. How we view the until affects how I live today. How I view Christ today is dictated by how I view him tomorrow. Chapters 12 to 14, we get another one. Now concerning the misuse of spiritual gifts. Now concerning the over-sensationalized experience that you're having with the Holy Spirit. Paul's point is, your spiritual experience, dear Corinthians, does not mean that heaven is now on earth. There's more yet to come. When Jesus gave the Holy Spirit, he gave it so you would fully participate in something still to come. It hasn't fully arrived. It's not fully complete. It's not the end. The Spirit means there's just more to come. In fact, the Spirit enables us to participate in Jesus in fresh ways. So, dear Corinthians, speaking in that angelic language, thinking you're more important than other people, or imitating that Greek practice of prophecy from down the road at Delphi, it doesn't equate to Holy Spirit activity. Speaking in some non-human tongue doesn't mean you have arrived spiritually. Jesus poured the Spirit out because there's something yet to come. And right in the middle of that spiritual gifts issue is chapter 13, the love chapter. In that chapter, the chapter 13, the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is love. Please hear me. I love you. I love Rev 22. Please don't stone me. But chapter 13 was not for a wedding ceremony. I'm sorry about that. I hope you understand. It's fine to read in a wedding ceremony because it's all about love. It's got some great things. But you've got to put it in the context of 12 and 14. It's about the problem of spiritual elitism and the giftedness. And the greatest of these is love. Here's the point. My gift is for you, not for me. If love is driving my spiritual giftedness, it's to benefit you, not to puff myself up. And that was the problem in Corinth. There's another now concerning, now concerning a collection to God's people over in Jerusalem. There's a famine going on in Palestine in the first century world. Actually, he's going to tap these wealthy, pocketed Corinthians to help those poorer Jerusalem Christians out. There's one more now concerning statement. All of these, chapters 1 through 14 and chapter 16, all address the health of the church, the, the, the immorality, the spirituality, the status, their view of community life in Jesus was being warped. Their ecclesiology, their ecclesia, the Greek word for the gathering, was skewed. 
So Paul wants to correct their view of the church by chapter 15. Chapter 15. Paul reaches the climax of the letter in chapter 15. It's 15 of chapter 16, almost all the way to the very end. The basis for being a healthy kingdom colony in this peninsula, the basis for being a healthy kingdom outpost in Corinth is going to be addressed by how you view your hope, your until perspective, your, please pardon my technology here, your eschatology will influence your ecclesiology. How you view tomorrow will affect how you view today is Paul's point. So he's going to address the purpose of the resurrection, which is vital if you're a Christ follower. The new reality in Jesus is possible only because he resurrected back to life. Hope must be placed in the resurrected one who will reappear one of these days. Not in one's over-sensationalized spiritual gifted ability. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to dwell in our frame, in our flesh, as a down payment, guaranteeing I will return one of these days. And speaking of Christ reappearing, as you read 1 Corinthians, every chapter hints at Jesus' return. Every chapter hints at the idea of a hope, and that hope dictates everything in the letter. The kingdom that was inaugurated by Jesus at his life and in his death and again in his life already is dawn, and it's been expressed through the gift of the Holy Spirit upon this church. But... Paul makes it abundantly clear that the kingdom is not here yet in full because we're still suffering. The kingdom has yet to come fully because we're still struggling. In that all-consuming way, the kingdom one day, it will resolve every issue of pain and death. But until then, there's something still to be working towards. Therefore, the presence of Jesus' kingdom now, but not yet, the presence of the kingdom now demands the Christian ethic and the Christian moral be controlled by the reality of the age that's coming. Paul's point, if we retrieve that, is it'll help us suffer well. If we view tomorrow, it'll impact our suffering today. And as you read, note the relationship between Christian suffering and Christian glory. Get this, Jesus' body mattered. His body suffered on the cross. His body rose from the dead in glory. Jesus dawned the kingdom through his bodily ministry, through his bodily death, and his bodily resurrection. That's what chapter 15 is all about. To Paul's point, our present physical body sitting here in this room matters because we will receive a new body, a version 2.0 one day that will be more suited for the glorious presence of God. So until then, we can suffer well. As we await, as we look for our bodily resurrection in Jesus, how we view our eternal resurrection as Christians affects how we live as Christians today. So that eternal perspective, that eternal angle actually is through the whole letter. Divisions are resolved with an eternal perspective. The temperature of love in the church will increase with an eternal perspective. The standard of morality in our relationships will be changed according to our eternal perspective. Mutual submission and respect for spiritual gifts increases with an eternal 
perspective. How we address male and female gender issues is tempered by an eternal perspective. Sharing in communion in the Lord's Supper deepens with an eternal perspective. The resurrection of Jesus that we get to share in one day changes everything today. Do you believe that? That's Paul's point. God's kingdom demands an ethical life today. And that is dependent upon how we view tomorrow. Can I say my big thought one more time? How we view tomorrow does indeed affect how I live today. Welcome to 1 Corinthians. Hope you have fun reading it. Let's pray about that right now, okay? I'm grateful for your timeless letter, Lord God, that you wrote through Paul. Though to a different town and a different era, there's some principles and timeless truths that can be meaningful for us. I'm praying for the church here. As they read 1 Corinthians afresh and study it for weeks to come, that you would reveal yourself in a fresh way, in a powerful way, in a transformative way. I'm praying that you would, you would help this church in its level of faithful obedience as they exist here in Boise. I'm praying for your blessing that your spirit would unlock the chapters on the page as they read and study through it in a way that would, that would change even Rev 22 for the better, for the healthier. Thank you for the hope, Jesus, in you. Thank you for the resurrection that, that we believe in that affects us today. We we treasure in the hope that we have, that we share with you now, that we can't wait to fully experience one day the relief, the complete salvation. I pray as this church celebrates communion in the months ahead that they would be eagerly proclaiming your death and your resurrection until you come. Would you bless this church going forward, Jesus? In your name I pray, Lord.